Welcome to Behind the Podium, a podcast series produced by GTS Educational Events that lets you hear what speakers are saying before or after the podium mic is turned on. Join me, your host, Jasper Appleton, to find out what makes these speakers tick and discover new insights about topics that matter to you on each episode of Behind the Podium. Welcome back to the Behind the Podium podcast. I'm your host, Jasper Appleton, and with me today is Ayan Natawa. Ayan, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do and why you're here? So like Jasper said, my name is Ayan Natala. I work for the Science Museum of Minnesota in a specific department called the Kitty Anderson Youth Science Center. So at that department, I work with primarily young girls, low-income students of color, um, where I teach them about STEM justice. And we define STEM justice as redefining STEM to address systems of oppression for our collective liberation. Awesome. And when did you start uh, realizing that you had a passion for, for the social justice and, and really wanted to kind of promote that, that message of equality out there? Mm-hmm. I think it always started, but I just didn't know it was social justice. I didn't have that word in my vocabulary. So um, all the way from um, high school, when I was going to Central High School in St. Paul, I was beginning to notice as a young black girl that I was going through discrimination um, and different mixed messages with my educators that were mostly white women and white men, and I didn't really have the language to talk to anyone about it. And what I ended up doing is joining debate, um, and debate kind of helped me get context and vocabulary to understand my personal experiences. And so I think it's funny that at this workshop, that was that is exactly what I was teaching other people to do. Yeah. And so just a little bit about kind of what you do. You go and you educate educators and, and business people to promote a, a, a healthier, you know, equality system in their in their workplace or environment. One of the things I wanted to ask you is what's the biggest hurdle? What's the biggest thing that you have to overcome to get that that sort of equality in the workplace? I think it's such a hard question because I grew up in Minnesota, I mm-hmm. live in Minnesota, and a tipping point for me was going to college here. Um, I went to McAllister College, and it was really interesting because most of the people that go to McAllister are not from Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them are international um, or have gone to schools that had a global perspective. And so it was interesting having people with a global perspective or from different states talk about Minnesota for me to see um, what's going on in my own backyard that I ha- I even had blinders too. And I think sometimes in Minnesota, we are so quick to talk about how great we are. And Mm -hmm. so then we do not actually have honest conversations about the work that needs to get done. Um, Or when we are doing the work, we still aren't self-reflective about Mm -hmm. our own biases. Um, And so it doesn't actually lead to like institutional or organizational change. Right. And that's actually a really interesting point that you bring that up because I, I go to school in, in Wisconsin, Milwaukee, and Milwaukee is one of the most segregated cities. And, you know, especially going to high school, um, not in the inner city and, and meeting a lot of people with suburban background and then going to uh, Wisconsin and swimming there and, you know, being on a team with predominantly white people. I've experienced for the past, like, 10 years, you know, people who are, aren't aware of these biases and aren't aware of that. And so when I went to Wisconsin, I noticed that, oh, wow, you know, Minnesota is so much better than Wisconsin, mm-hmm. even, you know, just in terms of, you know, mm-hmm. how we treat people of color, how we treat, you know, foreigners and, and just things like that. And then for you to still be like, oh, wow, even people who are not Minnesotan, they're, they're pointing at us and, and saying, you know, we're still not perfect. You exactly. Know? And there's still things that, you know, because Minnesota, in my, in my eyes, always going to be the best state in the world. Exactly. Always be the best people, the best, you know, 
we're very proud of, to be from where we are. You know, we all are claimed to be from Minnesota. Like, we're all, you know, very proud of that, yeah. that title and that identity, and that's part of us. Mm-hmm. But to still see that there's still separations within that Minnesotan, and, mm-hmm. you know, that's really, it's, it's really eye-opening, mm-hmm. at least to me. There's two Minnesota, Minnesotas, mm-hmm. and I think that's the important thing to recognize is that if you get to experience a certain type of Minnesota, of course, Minnesota's great. Mm-hmm. I benefit from it, and so I get to experience that type of Minnesota. Yeah. But I think where we lack understanding is that that's not every person's experience of Minnesota Um, and so how do we make sure that we also see Minnesota through that other lens when we're so um, in our own world to how great our Minnesota is exactly and so kind of tying it back um, because I just was at your keynote speech and it was was amazing and I think that the thing that would kind of hit me the most and was so powerful was when we were introducing ourselves and kind of why we're there and you know the reason the purpose of why we you know are interested in social justice why we came to this you know to speak um and i just how many you know people who are are caucasian who have not been marginalized who have not felt you know the hardships of social injustice and sitting there and just saying i want to learn what do you think is the most important thing for those people who just want to help Yeah, and I think we were trying to get at it with the worksheet that we had of the body and talking about everyone, white people, even myself included as a black woman, in your body, you are the oppressor and the oppressed at the same time. Like, yes, I am black, and that is something that marginalizes me or that I'm a woman, but also I went to McAllister College, right? My class privilege, my education privilege, my language, the fact that like Mm -hmm. I'm comfortable in this interview right now speaking English to get my point across, Mm -hmm. and that gives me um, power. And so I think that we need to start from this this vantage point of understanding that all of us have a stake in this, right? Mm-hmm. And also, like, white people, you also are oppressed by this context. And I think that's so interesting to me that there's always kind of, like, a savior complex. Like, we need to go out and save yeah. these other people who are dealing with discrimination. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, it's like, we appreciate you being an advocate and also you recognizing that you have this power to make change, mm-hmm. but also these systems oppress you too. Why didn't you get an education of understanding your own history? Yeah. Where do you come from? Exactly. You know? Right. And like, do you even, are you able to even speak the languages that your ancestors mm-hmm. spoke before? Like most, most Caucasians are German, Irish, Dutch. You don't speak your native language anymore. So what makes you, you know, kind of that, that higher up? And, and then for some reason they still feel they need to, push other cultures and other people down. I just And I think this is a weird thing to say and I and this is what our workshop was about is that it starts from you mm-hmm. then to the collective. I think white people sometimes they start so much of thinking about the other people trying to save the other person. Have you saved yourself yet? Mm-hmm. There's things that are already happening in this political system right now. Like just the example of gun violence where we're mm-hmm. all getting killed, right? Yeah. Like black people have been talking about police brutality, gun violence forever Mm -hmm. you know and now that it's starting to affect you like wake up police have also been killing white people you know and then also what are you going to do to make sure that less of us are killed again imagining Mm -hmm. the world that we all deserve to live in and how can you help us co-create that and you live in that world right you know so like where are you going to be when we as black people brown people indigenous people are creating that world Mm -hmm. are you going to help us are you going to also figure out how do you fit in that world are you going to start are you going to continue to stay in this world that also oppresses you instead of just being that this world currently only oppresses me it oppresses you too exactly and so how do we all work together but then also know your place while we work together exactly and I think that's so important it's just because, like you said, especially with gun violence, it's a perfect topic to, to explain that that theory. 
it, well, it's not really theory, but that that idea is that um, it's it's not a race issue. Like it's not you know white people like white people are killing you know black, there are also black people black cops who are also you know uh, oppressing other black people. You see you know in Baltimore where it was a black on black crime, but it doesn't. That's not the race. It's police brutality or gun violence. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's these things that you know aren't just race. It's mm-hmm. it, it's much further than race. Yeah, and also, like, and this is where the conversation gets tricky and touchy, is that we also still need to talk about patterns Mm -hmm. and how a lot of people, because we don't want to talk about whiteness and what whiteness goes through, so much of class relations is making sure that white people, um, and we don't talk about it, but how do I say this? Let me me go back. So I think sometimes when we talk about identity, um, we forget to also talk about Maslow hierarchy of needs. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And how because everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people are scared of scarcity, Yes. how that makes them do certain actions. And we cannot hide behind the fact that a lot of the people behind gun violence, yes, we can always talk about inner cities. We can talk about how it's an all-race issue, but we also need to be courageous in talking about who are mass shooters. Yep, who are they? Yep. Who are they? What is the pattern? Mm-hmm. What is their identity? And what are they scared about? Yep. Scarcity of what? Yeah. That, like what like, exactly? Why are they doing this? But we yes, but we don't have that conversation because we want to just say some. Sometimes it's important to like be like yes, we all need to be on a united front. We all you know mm-hmm. bleed red. Yes, yeah. but also sometimes we need to just say like point exactly. blank period. Yeah. Why is it that when we have our own domestic terrorism issue of white folks being these gun shooters, these mm-hmm. massive shooters, why are we still sugarcoating the conversation? Exactly. What issues do they feel like they are not getting what are they scared about Mm -hmm. why do they feel like they're going through scarcity um and we also need to have that conversation exactly because that brings me to my next question because um a lot of people especially you know children students who you know have a hard talking time talking about these things where they feel uncomfortable about talking about social justices talking about gun control where it's like oh it's a touchy subject i don't want to offend anyone Mm -hmm. if you're going to go into a conversation with the intention of offending then don't talk if your intentions are to, you know, willfully and, and, and try and help the problem and fix the problem, then your opinion, whether it's right or wrong, as long as you come in with an open mind and hear us and, and listen to, to people who have been infected by social justice as people who have, you know, these stakes in social movements, then by all means, we're going to accept you and we're going to love you and we're going to see you as an ally. But if you come in and you're, you know, thinking, oh, there's no problem, or if you try and be ignorant to the problem, that is when frustrations yeah. you know arise and that's what tensions cause but if you come in with an open heart open mind there will be no problem and i feel like that that was one of the biggest things that i got from from what you were talking about oh at the workshop mm, at the workshop yeah. yeah and i just think that all these conversations are uncomfortable talking to men about gender equity pay is uncomfortable for exactly. me yeah. but it's not fair that i need to always be the one uncomfortable mm-hmm. to move conversations policy and actions exactly. forward men should also be talking how do we make sure that we're doing things on our end to own up to our own discrimination of how we offer negotiations mm-hmm. and payments like exactly. so that it needs to be on both fronts and i do think that because we're living in such um, intense times right now. I think sometimes the rhetoric is that we need to all come together, and I think we also need to understand that people are grieving not only this period but 
decades and centuries worth of like what's being brought up now for certain people that sometimes like people need to be in their own spaces for healing. I really think it's important for white people sometimes to be in their own spaces of white people to heal from the things that they're going through that they keep so inside because again, we're talking about race is always about other people, right? And I think, and to talk about like, how do we process gun violence with these people being the face of that. Have white people gone in their own communities, in their own circles, at their own dinner tables to have those courageous conversations? And I would say no, because that's how Trump won. A lot of the times people were so scared to talk about what was motivating them to vote how they were. And so sometimes there was that conversation happening on Thanksgiving, but Mm -hmm. sometimes there wasn't. And so I think like there needs to be healing there and I don't need to be a part of that healing. And sometimes white people don't need to be in my own black space Mm -hmm. um, for us to be having that dialogue because there's so much hurt. And so I think it's also important to talk about like sometimes there's space for us to come together and sometimes there's space where we needed to do our own healing with our communities in the same way that I couldn't go to certain Muslim spaces, Mm -hmm. even if I'm trying to be an advocate, you know, there's specific healing that they have to do that sometimes does not involve me. If it's black related and we're talking about like black Muslim people Mm -hmm. and they want to have that solidarity conversation, Mm -hmm. then yeah, but we need to respect that. Because if I do go to that space, even if I'm trying to be an advocate, it makes sense that they would be like, you got to go. Or you're saying things that are hurtful. Mm -hmm. And even though that wasn't my intention, I need to own up to that. And I feel like they're... There needs to be a set standard, standard time where it is appropriate to help and it's appropriate to support, and then there is, is a time where it's just not, you know? And I feel like, especially, because what happened in, in, in El Paso, and you saw there was a lot of victims where, um, you know, and, and they saw it on the news, saw it in the media, where a lot of the, you know, there were glorified, you know, you know white people who, who got the glorified respect that the media normally just, sort of just shows them. <laughs> They're a nice family Put, or photos put on, and then, mm-hmm. but there were also undocumented immigrants, and they're not getting light of day. They're mm-hmm. they're undocumented immigrants that that got, you know, murdered, and they're they're not being talked about. Mm-hmm. They're, they're people too. They're yeah. humans too. Regardless of whether they came into our country, you know, regardless of whether you know legally or illegally, it doesn't matter. They're mm-hmm. human beings. You know, mm-hmm. their deaths are just as you know are, are things that we should grieve about, just as as normal as people who. Who immigrated here? What eighteen hundred in the eighteen hundreds, mm-hmm. and then took over. And we're supposed to—I'm supposed to feel more sad about them just because they're some. There's some imaginary thing that makes them an American, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like those are the the small little injustices, especially about you know for someone who's very passionate about media and wants to go into you know journalism and things like that. Looking at you know how the American people react. To media and how you know we force that you know because Fox and Friends will are very quick to blame to, to shift the blame anywhere else other than mm-hmm. you know the, the fact that it was a white national terrorist he went on he put a manifesto on 8chan a very famous you know alt-right mm-hmm. um, website that had free speech mm-hmm. he, the plan was premeditated he was by definition a terrorist mm-hmm. and yet instead Fox is very quick to say that it's a video game's fault Right, exactly. I have been playing violent video games since I could hold a controller. Yeah. I have met some of the best friends of my life playing violent video games. Mm-hmm. I am not a violent person, right? Mm-hmm. If anything, it gives me an out where, because we all have violent, you know, sometimes we come home from our day of work and we're like, I do not like my boss today. I yeah. go home and play some Call of Duty. Mm-hmm. And then I don't feel like doing anything bad. And, mm-hmm. and it's never gotten to that point. Yeah. We need to talk about mental illness. We need to talk about gun restriction. We need to talk about, you know, things that are going to 
Mm-hmm. Limit those things. And again, it goes back to what I was saying of scarcity. Mm-hmm. Like there is, because of the propaganda, and sometimes also just like being a human, trying to provide for yourself, relating it back to the Maslow hierarchy of needs. Exactly. Who admits, like, this is really taboo to say, but if you are scared that you're not going to be able to survive and have housing, or you're embarrassed that you're playing the video games at your parents' house right. because you're a millennial that has so much debt mm-hmm. and you can't be on your own, and then you hear Trump and you hear him how he's talking about yep. people who are taking your resources. Yes. When are white people going to have conversations with those other white people about the misconceptions that that person has about scarcity? Mm -hmm. Right. And that it's not that person's fault that that Trump is putting blame on, but it is our system. Right. And that's why it goes back to the social justice conversation. I cannot reach that person. Right. Right. I, I put myself in danger if I'm trying to talk to that person about these things. That person cannot go to my workshop. If the person was in my workshop, I would leave the workshop for my own, again, safety. But again, before that person gets to that point, like our white people, again, healing themselves yeah. in their own communities, exactly. that's not my job. Mm-hmm. You know, before I would think maybe, and I think I've been socialized from white people, especially Minnesota, that it is my job to help them heal. It is my job right. to teach them about social justice. In a way, I'm still unpacking that, right, because mm-hmm. I'm at this conference. Mm-hmm. But it's like we also need to challenge white people to be like, this is your work too. Mm-hmm. What are you doing? Exactly. Are you having those conversations with those people before they get to the point of having that mm-hmm. gun about Maslow Harkey of Needs? Because why does it have to be an after effect? Why yeah. does it have to be an after after statement after these bad things happen? Mirror Rice, why is um, Philando Castile, why, why do these people have to die before we can you know, sit down and say, listen, it can't just be us. Be us that are up in arms about this. Mm-hmm. Because we, you've already shown us, history has already shown us, our voices do not matter as much as yours. And I think after Obama, it's important to like talk about him as we talk about mm-hmm. Trump, is that he showed us that sometimes it doesn't matter who's in the position. We need to understand exactly. what the position is mm-hmm. and how anyone in that position is still operating in a system yeah. of oppression. Exactly. And so even if I was put in that position, mm-hmm. like even if I'm trying to challenge and be there for my people or whatever initiatives I have that are more liberatory, I'm still constricted mm-hmm. with the limits and yeah. bounds of that jurisdiction 100%. of that power, right? And so I think that we also have to get into more new. I think I think about this because I'm not just Minnesotan. I also um, have immigrant parents. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my parents is um, from Zambia and one of my parents is from Southside Chicago. Right. So we have really interesting conversations about how we need to also, as indigenous and people of color, decenter whiteness from our own conversations okay. about like how do our people have we have internalized messages from mm-hmm. colonization or whiteness, and then influence that when we're in power, right? And that's something that I still need to think about even as an educator. Like, what are things that I've internalized about land that is untrue because I'm erasing indigenous people? And again, I'm black. Like, So there's things that I still need to reflect about. And again, that might not be able to happen um, in conversations with white people. It has to happen in these other conversations where we also start to understand that power looks complicated. It is. Yeah. <laughs> but at the end of the day, we are a democratic system. At the end of the day, come together and, and see that these social justice issues, they're, they're issues. And that if we get enough people together and we band together and educate, because that's all it is, it's education. It's telling people that, you know, this isn't how we like to be treated. We want, we want better. We want human rights. We want to be able to get pulled over for a traffic stop and not be worried. Because mm-hmm. when I get pulled over for a traffic stop now, 
the first thing that I do, I don't reach for my license, I don't reach for my insurance. I put on my videotape and I put the phone right in mm-hmm. the car. Mm-hmm. If anything happens to me, but you know, and I live in Minnesota, but it's still, not, it, doesn't still it doesn't matter. Again, Again what Minnesota do you exactly, live in? Exactly. exactly. And so, you know, at the end of the day, we as a, as a community need to come together and educate other people of these white people so that we can have a conversation, you know? And I think also one thing that's hard is that different people are being aware of these things at different times. And so a couple of years ago, I felt that way. But now there's people who are like, we can't even live in the United States anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, like so many of us are on different frames of reference on our hopes in this country because this isn't new. Like a lot of people felt that Trump was going to win. You know, like I I didn't think Hillary was going to win because even Hillary, there was a lot of issues there, you yeah. know. So even though I voted for Hillary, you know, there was a hashtag that was like that said, I guess I'm with her. I guess I'm, yeah. That's something like, that like black women were talking about mm-hmm. on Twitter. And it's like our white people are you even aware that even Hillary Clinton was oppressive. Yeah. You know, and that a lot of the ways that we want to think about change is different because different issues affect us and the timeline of how we've been aware of them is different, yeah. right? Like, if we go to Flint, there could be, like, it don't matter exactly. which person it is, mm-hmm. you all left us, or Hurricane Katrina, yeah. or indigenous people. Like, how are indigenous people supposed to have hope yeah. in the system? And they do in different ways, but sometimes in the ways that we think about it, it's still oppressive to indigenous exactly. people. So I just think that, again, this is a, is a complicated conversation because different people have different perspectives about it Mm -hmm. um, and that there is going to be some disagreements and some tension um, with how we should move forward because now at this point it's like the how of it there's so many different opinions yeah and just as as closing closing question is there is there anything that if if you could change you had the power you know would it what what would you put the most energy into and it, it although change although isn't you know immediate despite that what what do you feel in 10 years 15 years could change what do you want to see change yeah and this is really morbid to say and black women have been saying this i'm at a point where i'm fearful of having black children um and so not only am i thinking about the safety of them if i bring that them to this life i think about also um what life will they inherit and also will I even be able to survive childbirth because of again other issues that my identities like go through with the medical system and so for me I'm not even thinking anymore about having kids Um, and that's something that I talk about with um, people that I'm with Um, and also so with that to answer your question the change starts with me I think that um, one thing that gives me hope is that, like I said, if I'm not here, how can I do anything, (laughs) right? So I need to make sure that I'm safe, Mm -hmm. I'm secure, that I'm spiritually, mentally grounded. So I start with myself. Mm -hmm. That's the change that I want to see is that I'm here and I'm okay. Mm Because if I'm not okay, I'm not productive in this work. I'm not sustainable. Let me not even talk about productivity. I'm not even sustainable because I'm not here. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, I always encourage people like, especially people who are at that state where I'm in, in terms of that being that cynical, because again, Trump, this stuff isn't new. Um, 
is that I want to make sure that I'm okay and also that I'm with people that I trust um, that keep me safe where we're imagining a whole other world we want to live in and we're making that happen in our own communities. Um, And so again, not having a deficit model. Um, And sometimes I do that with certain white people I trust and sometimes white people are not invited while me and certain communities are creating another world that we want to live in for our own safety so we can exist in the future um, to do the dope work that we're trying to do. Awesome. Thank you so much again, Ion. Um, your links will be in the description for anyone that would like to check it out. Um, please do do check her out. She is an incredible speaker. Uh, she has the greatest mind on her. And thank you again so much for, for Thank and you. Doing and check us out at the Science Museum. Yes, please do. Thanks for listening to Behind the Podium, a podcast by GTS Educational Events. Visit our website, mngts.org, for the full lineup of podcasts and to learn all about the exciting events we have coming up. 